0: This podcast is made possible with collaboration and input from the LinkedIn Digital Transformation Group with reference to Google News and Wikipedia. Strategy as a way of life. Businesses must root strategy in moral purpose to thrive in a complex, rapidly changing world. We live in a world of discontinuity and uncertainty where norms are rapidly disintegrating and businesses are losing their footing. We live in a time of flux and fluidity when mandates for growth are driving high-velocity, unrelenting change. We live in a messy world where boundaries are becoming more porous, and unprecedented complexity adds ambiguity and reduces predictability. Our traditional approach to strategy, based on data and analysis, is at a crossroads in this era of unknown unknowns. The most well-trained AI, built on vast stores of data, information, and knowledge, could not have predicted how the COVID-19 pandemic would affect a world made more open and connected by digital technologies. Can the strategy be reframed so that companies can thrive in the face of our current and future challenges? We believe not only that strategy can be reconceived, but that it must be. In our 50 years of researching companies both in the US and in Japan, Our view of the organization has evolved from an information processing machine as influenced by Herbert Simon to a living organism continually creating new knowledge. We argue that to survive in today's world, this living organism must be grounded in moral purpose and guided by the goals of offering value to customers, contributing to society, living in harmony with nature, and creating a better future. The soul of an organization Advances in neuroscience research in recent years have shed light on the biological factors driving humans' sense of purpose. We now know that the most basic need we are compelled to meet is social connection, it has a stronger motivational pull than even food, water, and shelter. Neuroscientists have also found that the human brain exhibits a predisposition to seek the common good via egalitarian and altruistic behavior and it is able to combine data from multiple sources of sensory input to plan future courses of action and to handle unexpected and novel situations. These findings suggest that our purpose as human beings is rooted in our universal tendencies to relate to and care for one another, that we share the ability to rapidly adapt to changing circumstances, and that we can imagine together how we might create a better world, the same sense of purpose and set of capabilities exist in the living being that is the company. Kazuo Inamori, who founded Kyocera in 1959, believed that a company, as a collection of human beings, should strive to operate in a way that is good and right, just as individuals strive to work hard, think good thoughts, do the right thing, practice self-reflection and self-discipline, refine their minds, and elevate their character in everyday life. Inamori's 2004 book, Ikikata, which translates to how to live, describes such conduct as living with the purpose of elevating our souls so that each day they are a little more beautiful, developed, and noble. These principles have guided Inamori, who is also a lay Buddhist monk, as a human being, as a CEO, and as a chairman when he resurrected Japan Airlines from bankruptcy. Similarly, Tadashi I, CEO of Fast Retailing, which operates the Uniqlo stores, is guided by 23 management principles that he calls the soul of his company, and he believes that a soul is the most important thing we have in life. Influenced by running a single shop in the 1980s, Yanai's first principle is meet customer needs and create new customers. This is done a little at a time, he explains, by devoting your life to meeting customer needs a little better every day. Yanai's second principle, put good ideas into practice, move the world, and change and contribute to society, reflects his conviction that a company exists to serve society. These principles are integral to his leadership. At a 2010 meeting of his global management team, Yanai spent a day and a half going over the 23 principles so that executives could internalize them and put them into practice globally. The underlying concept, the soul of an organization, has also shaped the vision of U.S. business leaders, such as Microsoft chairman, and CEO Satya Nadella, and Salesforce co-founder Mark Benioff. Nadella explored the idea in his 2017 book, Hit Refresh, the quest to rediscover Microsoft's soul and imagine a better future for everyone. He identified his company's higher purpose as helping every person and every organization on the planet achieve more. And he connected soul and strategy, rediscovering the soul of Microsoft, he argued, will lead to getting its strategy right, which in turn will improve life for all customers, employees, partners, and members of society. Benioff tied purpose even more explicitly to the organization's role in society, writing in his 2019 book Trailblazer, today's world is so rife with challenging economic, social and political issues that it's no longer feasible for a company to turn away and conduct business as usual. Over time, your employees and customers not to mention investors, partners, host communities, and other stakeholders, will want to know your philosophy for doing business. They want to know if you have a soul. Strategy at the crossroads. As the CEOs of two leading American companies talk openly and passionately about the idea that organizations are living beings with souls invested in improving everyone's prospects, not just their own, we expect that other business leaders will embrace that message. We believe more and more of them recognize that CEOs must start formulating a strategy with their souls and then execute it with their brains. What do we mean by that? Let's examine our terms a little more closely. We use soul to describe the simple truths and principles that guide us to do what is right as human beings, representing a living philosophy born from experience and practice. Soul helps us find our way every day through uncertainty and hardship, it is a way of life. We use brain to refer to the analysis that will help companies operate in a messy world and wend their way through its complexities and ambiguities. Today we have vast amounts of data available and advanced technologies such as internet connected sensors and AI allow us to gather, process and interpret that data in ever more sophisticated ways. This means organizations can develop more complex scenarios and simulations, conduct more experiments, and overall respond much more adaptively to unforeseen events than they used to. By starting with the soul, companies can crystallize how they are going to achieve their purpose of making a better future for everyone. Drawing on deeply held values, companies can imagine what kind of future they wish to create and then use their brains to make it happen. They have all the analytical tools they need to achieve their goal of generating superior returns. The key question then becomes, how should companies use both souls and brains so that strategy becomes relevant to the world we live in? Six practices that infuse strategy with soul. Doing the ordinary things in life a little bit better every day elevates individuals. During the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, small things such as wearing masks, washing hands, and keeping social distance have all helped prevent the spread of the disease. Each small practice that makes our bodies a little healthier, our minds a little more peaceful, the air we breathe a little cleaner, and the places in which we stay a little more beautiful helps us connect to the goal of improving ourselves and our world. Likewise, doing the ordinary things a little bit better every day in our jobs, such as working hard, making ethical choices, being kind, practicing self-reflection and self-discipline, being humble, and being thankful elevates our work lives. This builds culture at the organizational level and character at the personal level. These behaviors have to be practiced every day so that they become a way of life, just like Toyota has built daily routines, or Carter, into its famous Toyota production system, TPS. Kata is defined as a means for keeping your thoughts and actions in sync with dynamic, unpredictable conditions. For it includes process-related practices such as Ask Why Five Times, the Kanban card that accompanies components sent along the production line, Yokoten Best Practice Sharing, jidoka Automation, Maruka Visualization, and the A3 reporting process, named after the paper size. It also includes conduct-related practices like OASIS, an acronym for saying ohayo, hey oh, good morning, arigato, thank you, shitsureishamashita, pardon me, and "Sumimasen," excuse me, I'm sorry, on the shop floor. These practices ensure that things get done the right way in any company that follows the TPS. Similarly, as we have learned over decades of studying organizations, companies can adopt six daily practices to elevate strategy to a way of life. 1. Cope with complexity. 2. Adapt to change 3. Embrace dynamic duality 4. Empathize with everyone 5. Tell stories 6. Live with nature This set of practices helps organizations connect to the goal of building better lives and futures for company stakeholders and other members of society. You may be familiar with each one, but the key lies in doing all of these things habitually a little better every day, that's how their impact will become greater than the sum of their parts. We will discuss one at a time, describing how each practice infuses strategy with soul and thus helps companies define and pursue business goals that support the common good. Cope with complexity. The growing complexity of our world and its many interrelated systems is widely acknowledged. To solve our most pressing problems, We must tap diverse perspectives and sources of expertise across multiple domains, no single approach or field of study will provide the answers. Likewise, we must bring all of our own diverse capabilities to bear, the ability to sit with a complex problem and tap both analytical and intuitive thinking to address, it is increasingly crucial to organisations. An aircraft represents the epitome of complexity at the product level take the honda jet plane which consists of some 200,000 parts it took more than nine years and 200 million pages of documentation for north carolina-based honda aircraft to receive u.s federal aviation administration certification for this plane yet the breakthrough innovation that launched the company's success was a simple idea that came to aircraft designer mikamasa fujino one night in 1997 as he lay in the dark Why not put the engine on the wing? He jumped out of bed, turned on the lights, and roughly sketched out his idea on the back of a calendar page because he had no other paper close at hand. When he showed his sketch to his development team members the next morning, everyone laughed at him. These aviation experts knew that mounting the engines on top of the wings was taboo, it would kill the aircraft's aerodynamics. Undeterred, Fugino dug into the complex problem and worked slowly but steadily to prove that the -the over-the-wing concept would produce less drag. Finding the precise place to mount the engines on the wings was a delicate process, move the engines four inches away from the sweet spot, in any direction, and the plane would not fly. Fujino finally figured out where to position them when he tested a scale model at Boeing's wind tunnel facility. He had overturned conventional wisdom while coping with an extremely high level of complexity. HondaJet made its maiden flight in 2003 in the US and received rave reviews. However, Fujino was exhausted by his decades-long quest to create an industry-changing small jet. He had been working on the challenge since 1986 when Honda first assigned him to an RAND D team working to develop an experimental aircraft. He confided to us that when he took a three-week vacation with his family in the Bahamas after the test flight, he considered quitting the company. Fortunately, an American executive staying in the same hotel told him how cool the jet looked and promised to buy one. According to Fujino, that's when he understood what his superiors in Tokyo had always told him, that he was working for the customer, not for the company. The soul of the company rested in founder Soichiro Honda's 3 Joys principle The joy of buying, the joy of selling, and the joy of creating.
1: A message from our sponsor, Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me tell you here how it works it's free, you can register free online. Just go to Anchor.fm and register. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or desktop computer, that's how easy it is. Anchor will also help to distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and many more other platforms. You can also generate income from your podcast, with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast, all in one place. Now, you can download the Anchor apps from the Apple Store or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast, thanks again.
0: The ability to cope with complexity allowed Fujino to successfully persevere and introduce a transformative innovation. But to keep moving forward long term, he had to be guided by the organization's soul. By recalling the three joys and the idea of making things better for the customer, Fujino also recalled his essential purpose. When Honda finally decided to put the HondaJet into commercial production in 2006, Fujino was named President and CEO of its new Honda Aircraft Group, and he went on to become one of the most lauded innovators ever in aeronautical research and design. Adapt to change The rapid rate of change that characterizes the modern world driven largely by accelerated technological progress, demands that leaders and organizations anticipate and adapt to new circumstances at a pace unprecedented in human history. Microsoft's renaissance under Nadella shows how a leader who begins by establishing a deeper purpose for the organization and is guided by that purpose rather than a strategy of, for example, market dominance, can more clearly see emerging trends and cultural changes and successfully adapt to them. For example, Nadella understood that the technology world was shifting to ecosystems of partners linked with open systems, and the proprietary approach that Microsoft had long favoured would no longer confer an advantage. He also understood that the company had to move beyond a strategy rooted in trying to preserve the past, that is, Microsoft's dominance of the PC market via the Windows operating system. He recognised that the most important emerging areas in tech were cloud and AI so he made major investments in both that have kept the company at the forefront in these areas. Being adaptive involves being humble, and Nadella's leadership has been characterized by humility rarely displayed by his predecessors. He has been quoted as saying, from ancient Greece to modern Silicon Valley, the only thing that gets in the way of continued success and relevance, and impact, is hubris, Six's example shows that grounding strategy in Seoul is linked to the ideal of servant leadership, where the focus is on the greater good rather than oneself. Under his guidance, Microsoft has achieved great success while also shedding its reputation as a bully that used questionable tactics to dominate. Internally, he has been credited with overhauling outdated management structures and creating a more collaborative culture, where previously the culture had been shaped by performance management practices that fueled competition among employees and undermined cooperation. And he created internal hackathons that helped break down entrenched silos across the business and got more people working together. Purpose Soul has been at the core of Nadella's ability to lead the organization through change. In an email to employees when he took the helm, he wrote, This starts with clarity of purpose and sense of mission that will lead us to imagine the impossible and deliver it. We need to prioritize innovation that is centered on our core value of empowering users and organizations to do more. The best work happens when you know that it does not just work, but something that will improve other people's lives. This is the opportunity that drives each of us at this company. Embrace dynamic duality. In the West, an intellectual tradition of dualistic thinking, drawing sharp distinctions between mind and body, self and other, Humanity and nature has led business executives to neatly divide knowledge into two categories Explicit knowledge, which can easily be articulated and shared, and tacit knowledge, which is more intuitive and gained from lived experience They often value the former more highly than the latter In contrast, the intellectual tradition in Japan has stressed the oneness of body and mind, of self and other, of humanity and nature This tradition has led Japanese executives to view explicit and tacit knowledge as mutually complementary, with the emphasis placed more on the latter. Tacit and explicit knowledge form a dynamic duality interacting with and interchanging into each other to create something new through life experiences. After a six-year study of Toyota, we concluded that the company actively embraces and cultivates contradiction, opposites, and paradoxes making dynamic duality an integral part of its culture. In 2008, three of us from Hitotsubashi University in Tokyo wrote a book that focused on how Toyota reinforces the culture of dynamic duality, making it a way of life. Point eight we identified six traits. Toyota moves slowly, a little at a time, but takes big leaps once in a while. It is frugal on a daily basis, but splurges on key events. It is efficient on day-to-day operations, but redundant in its use of employees' time. It grows surely and steadily yet is constantly paranoid. It is hierarchical, but gives employees the freedom to push back. It simplifies internal messaging, but builds a complex analog web of human relationships to share knowledge throughout the organization. The current CEO, Arkeo Toyoda, sees himself at the center of this analog web calling himself an oyaji, old man of a small to medium-sized enterprise, SME. In a 2016 interview, he said about himself, "An oyaji in a SME sees straight into employees' faces, feels their body temperatures, and comes close to empathize with them. I don't want to say that I cannot do these things because I run a big company," nine that is a duality he embodies. As our interaction with Akio Toyota and the company that bears his name illustrates, Toyota keeps on pursuing dynamic duality, idealism and reality, analog and digital, unpredictability and stability, as a way of life. Empathize with everyone. Human survival has always depended on our ability to organize in mutually supportive groups for food and protection, which is why the social connection is our top priority. At the root of connecting with others is empathizing with them. Facing today's crises, political and business leaders should unite, using this unique quality that we humans have. To empathize on a deep level, we need to develop a keen understanding of others' perspectives and cultivate compassion in our hearts. That's exactly what Eisai, a leading Japanese pharmaceutical company, is doing with its 10,000 employees in Japan and abroad. Each employee spends a few days a year with patients in healthcare facilities, learning about their specific ailments and developing empathy for what they are feeling deep inside. Haru Onato, who has been CEO since 1988, explained, We get to know how patients feel by spending time with them, which eventually moves all of us to tears. Our motivation comes from our desire to do something about the true needs we grasped then and there. This ability of humans to perceive others' feelings and sensitivities, to collaborate and build relationships, will be invaluable in a digital-led, highly-automated world. Self companies that lead the way will make it part of their purpose to help employees, customers, and others develop a deeper understanding of and respect for one another in a future where a torrent of technology may otherwise dehumanize us. Tell Stories Effective business leaders understand the power of using stories to communicate the essence of their beliefs and ideals and to help the organization internalize strategy. The recently retired chairman and CEO of Fujifilm, Shigetaka Komori, created two guiding narratives about the company Point Eleven First to help people envision a different future for the company at a time when the market was transitioning from photographic film to digital technology. Kamori chose to reinterpret a famous quote from German philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk became the owl of Minerva spreads its wings at the beginning of a new age. The original quote depicted knowledge, symbolized by the owl, as hindsight, arriving only when the day is done. In the reinterpretation, we see how knowledge can bring us into the future. Komori's strategic narrative identified Fujifilm with the Owl of Minerva taking off at the beginning of the new age of digitalization. Second, Komori used stories to encourage all of his employees to use their whole body intelligence, not only their five senses, but also the intuition that springs from lived bodily experience. He told this story to make his point, if you are caught in a fire, which direction and how fast should you run to escape the flames? The difference between the people who escape to safety and those who don't is based on intelligence. It is a difference of instinct and intuition. Indeed, Fujifilm escaped the fire that has destroyed other analog businesses. In 2018, it generated the highest revenue in its 87-year history. It had transformed itself from a photographic film company into one engaged in six core businesses, healthcare, graphic systems, highly functional materials, optical devices, digital imaging, and documentation. According to Komori, Fujifilm achieved that business success by extracting the experimental knowledge of all its employees, what he calls muscle intelligence, and by sharpening all their human capabilities, using what he calls the whole-body theory of business. He warned, if one element is missing, the totality will be reduced, results will not follow, and defeat will ensue. After all, it is through their capabilities as total human beings that top leaders are able to engage each individual employee and lead the company as a whole. Live with nature. Complex systems in nature, like Earth's climate, predate Homo sapiens by more than 3 billion years, and we humans have been living with them since our species first appeared. Shinto priests at Ice Grand Shrine have been rebuilding the shrine every 20 years for the past 1300 years, an act of renewal that honors the cyclical quality of nature. Shinto, which most Japanese view not as a distinct religion, but as a way or practice, teaches that gods kami dwell in all things in nature. The Japanese tradition of oneness of humanity and nature, also practiced by many indigenous cultures around the world, has taken on new relevance as humankind seeks to repair the damage to our natural environment caused by industrialization. This concept also serves as the foundation of a course that one of us, Takeuchi, has been teaching since 2012. The course has included a visit to the Tohoku region of Japan, which was hit by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, and by the subsequent nuclear accident at the Fukushima power plant that caused radioactive contamination of the air, land and water. Local high schoolers who experienced the triple disaster, some of whom lost loved ones, have spoken with our students on the meaning of happiness and the role humans have in living in harmony with nature and preserving it. Our students have visited the oyster farms in Tohoku to learn about symbiosis, a word derived from the Greek for living together. At the coastal town of Kesenuma in Miyagi prefecture, the symbiosis between the forest and the sea was recognized and restored, through the initiative of one fisherman running an oyster farm. Shigeki Hatokeyomon noticed that his oysters were turning blood-red due to the outbreak of red tide in the mid-1960s. When he realized that the tide was caused by the contaminated river water flowing into the bay, he convinced his fellow fishermen to start planting trees in the forest to protect and preserve the river basin. He was motivated by elders' teachings that essential nutrients for the sea are carried by rivers from the forest. Yomo established a not-for-profit organization to do this work. Its name, roughly translated, means the forest is the lover of the sea. The name conveys its purpose, but the tagline makes the symbiotic relationship crystal clear, the forest is longing for the sea. The sea is longing for the forest. In other words, the people at the sea are saying, we need the forest to make sure oysters live, and the people on land are saying, we need the oysters to make sure reforestation continues generation after generation. When the earthquake and tsunami hit Kesennuma in 2011, Hatokeyomo lost his mother and his boats. His only solace came when he found later that there was enough healthy plankton in the bay to feed the oysters, and that is what kept him and his organization going. When we value living with nature, we care for the environment, and in turn, preserve our livelihoods. Surviving the future. These six practices must become a way of life for companies to survive in this day an age of unknown unknowns. They must also become the modus operandi in the life of a strategist who seeks to meet the unprecedented challenges facing businesses and humankind. Observing leaders who consistently do these things has taught us the following lessons about strategy. First, the strategy must be driven by human beings. Strategy is as fundamental as thinking good thoughts, doing the right thing, and practicing self-reflection and self-discipline in everyday life. The six practices we discussed represent our philosophy of doing business, what we call soul. Our customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and shareholders want to know whether we have a soul if we are to build mutual trust and connection. Second, strategy is driven by wisdom. Mother's wisdom, what elders have taught us, and practical wisdom, what lived experience has taught us, enable us to grasp the essence of a matter intuitively and, at the same time, cope with the fast-changing world. Companies have to continuously change to survive, So they should focus on becoming a little bit better every day rather than fixate on drawing up a precise plan. Practical wisdom enables managers to make judgment calls on how to act at certain times, under specific conditions, and to undertake the best action at each juncture. Third, strategy is about future making. The future is hazy and unpredictable, which is why leaders need to tell stories about where they are headed, it allows others in the organization to follow. Narratives illustrate a set of beliefs about what the company stands for and what kind of legacy it wants to leave behind for future generations. These stories bind the organization together and help strategy become a way of life for all employees. Last but not least, strategy is about making choices. It is about choosing the future we want to make, and that future must extend beyond the narrow interests of the company. Only then will companies start thinking of themselves as social entities that have been charged with a purpose to create lasting benefits for society and to improve the human condition. No company will survive long term if it does not start with a moral purpose and end up offering value to customers, contributing to society, living in harmony with nature, and creating a better future, every day, as a way of life. Why so many data science projects fail to deliver organizations can gain more business value from advanced analytics by recognizing and overcoming five common obstacles the research this article is based on an in-depth study of the data science efforts in three large private sector indian banks with collective assets exceeding 200 million dollars the study included on-site observations Semistructured structured interviews with 57 executives, managers, and data scientists, and the examination of archival records. The five obstacles and the solutions for overcoming them emerged from an inductive analytical process based on the qualitative data. More and more companies are embracing data science as a function and a capability. But many of them have not been able to consistently derive business value from their investments in big data artificial intelligence and machine learning point one. Moreover, evidence suggests that the gap is widening between organizations successfully gaining value from data science and those struggling to do so. To better understand the mistakes that companies make when implementing profitable data science projects and discover how to avoid them, we conducted in-depth studies of the data science activities in three of India's top ten private sector banks with well-established analytics departments. We identified five common mistakes, as exemplified by the following cases we encountered, and below we suggest corresponding solutions to address them. Mistake 1, the hammer in search of a nail. Herein, a recently hired data scientist in one of the banks we studied, is the kind of analytics wizard that organizations covet. Point 3 he is especially taken with the k-nearest neighbors algorithm, which is useful for identifying and classifying clusters of data. I have applied K-nearest Neighbors to several simulated data sets during my studies, he told us, and I can't wait to apply it to the real data soon. Hiren did exactly that a few months later, when he used the K-nearest Neighbors algorithm to identify especially profitable industry segments within the bank's portfolio of business checking accounts. His recommendation to the business checking accounts team, target two of the portfolio's 33 industry segments. This conclusion underwhelmed the business team members. They already knew about these segments and were able to ascertain segment profitability with simple back-of-the-envelope calculations. Using the K-nearest neighbors algorithm for this task was like using a guided missile when a pellet gun would have sufficed. In this case and some others we examined in all three banks, the failure to achieve business value resulted from an infatuation with data science solutions. This failure can play out in several ways. In Hirent's case, the problem did not require such an elaborate solution. In other situations, we saw the successful use of a data science solution in one arena become the justification for its use in another arena, in which it wasn't as appropriate or effective. In short, this mistake does not arise from the technical execution of the analytical technique, it arises from its misapplication. After Hiren developed a deeper understanding of the business, he returned to the team with a new recommendation, again, he proposed using the K-nearest neighbors algorithm, but this time at the customer level instead of the industry level. This proved to be a much better fit, and it resulted in new insights that allowed the team to target as yet untapped customer segments. The same algorithm in a more appropriate context offered a much greater potential for realizing business value. It's not exactly rocket science to observe that analytical solutions are likely to work best when they are developed and applied in a way that is sensitive to the business context. But we found that data science does seem like rocket science to many managers. Dazzled by the high-tech aura of analytics, they can lose sight of context. This was more likely, we discovered, when managers saw a solution work well elsewhere, or when the solution was accompanied by an intriguing label such as AI or machine learning. Data scientists, who were typically focused on the analytical methods, often could not or, at any rate, did not provide a more holistic perspective. To combat this problem, senior managers at the banks in our study often turned to train. At one bank, data science recruits were required to take product training courses taught by domain experts alongside product relationship manager trainees. This bank also offered data science training tailored for business managers at all levels and taught by the head of the data science unit. The curriculum included basic analytics concepts, with an emphasis on questions to ask about specific solution techniques, and whether techniques should or should not be used. In general, the training interventions designed to address this problem aim to facilitate the cross-fertilization of knowledge among data scientists, business managers and domain experts and help them develop a better understanding of one another's jobs. In related field work, we have also seen process-based fixes for avoiding the mistake of jumping too quickly to a favored solution. One large U-S-based aerospace company uses an approach it calls the seven ways, which requires that teams identify and compare at least seven possible solution approaches and then explicitly justify their final selection. Mistake two, unrecognized sources of bias. Pranav, a data scientist with expertise in statistical modeling, was developing an algorithm aimed at producing a recommendation for the underwriters responsible for approving secured loans to small and medium-sized enterprises. Using the credit approval memos, CAMS, for all loan applications processed over the previous 10 years, he compared the borrowers' financial health at the time of their application With their current financial status. Within a couple of months, Pronov had a software tool built around a highly accurate model, which the underwriting team implemented. Unfortunately, after six months, it became clear that the delinquency rates on the loans were higher after the tool was implemented than before. Perplexed, senior managers assigned an experienced underwriter to work with Pronov to figure out what had gone wrong. The epiphany came, when the underwriter discovered that the input data came from CAMs, what the underwriter knew, but Pranov hadn't, was that CAMs were prepared only for loans that had already been pre screened by experienced relationship managers, and were very likely to be approved. Data from loan applications rejected at the pre screening stage was not used in the development of the model, which produced a huge selection bias. This bias led Pranov to miss the import of a critical decision parameter. Bounce checks. Unsurprisingly, there were very few instances of bounce checks among the borrowers whom relationship managers had pre screened. The technical fix in this case was easy Pranov added data on loan applications rejected in pre screening, and the bounce checks parameter became an important element in his model. The tool began to work as intended. The bigger problem for companies seeking to achieve business value from data science is how to discern such sources of bias upfront and ensure that they do not creep into models in the first place. This is challenging because laypeople, and sometimes analytics experts themselves, can't easily tell how the black box of analytics generates output. And analytics experts who do understand the black box often do not recognize the biases embedded in the raw data they use. The banks in our study avoid unrecognized bias by requiring that data scientists become more familiar with the sources of the data they use in their models. For instance, we saw one data scientist spend a month in a branch shadowing a relationship manager to identify the data needed to ensure that a model produced accurate results. We also saw a project team composed of data scientists and business professionals use a formal bias avoidance process in which they identified potential predictor variables and their data sources, and then scrutinized each for potential biases. The objective of this process was to question assumptions and otherwise deodorize the data, thus avoiding problems that can arise from the circumstances in which the data was created or gathered. Mistake 3. Right solution, wrong time. Kartik, a data scientist with expertise in machine learning, Spent a month developing a sophisticated model for analysing savings account attrition and he then spent three more months fine-tuning it to improve its accuracy. When he shared the final product with the savings account product team, they were impressed, but they could not sponsor its implementation because their annual budget had already been expended. Eager to avoid the same result the following year, Kardec presented his model to the product team before the budgeting cycle began. But now the team's mandate from senior management had shifted from account retention to account acquisition. Again, the team was unable to sponsor a project based on Kartik's model. In his third year of trying, Kartik finally got approval for the project, but he had little to celebrate. Now they want to implement it, he told us, with evident dismay, but the model has decayed and I will need to build it again. The mistake that blocks banks from achieving value in cases like this is a lack of synchronization between data science and the priorities and processes of the business. To avoid it, better links between data science and the strategies and systems of the business are needed. Senior executives can ensure the alignment of data science activities with organizational strategies and systems by more tightly integrating data science practices and data scientists with the business in physical, structural, and process terms. For example, one bank embedded data scientists in business teams on a project basis. In this way, the data scientists rubbed elbows with the business team day-to-day, becoming more aware of its priorities and deadlines, and in some cases actually anticipating unarticulated business needs. We have also seen data science teams co-located with business teams As well as the use of process mandates, such as requiring that project activities be conducted at the business team's location, or that data scientists be included in business team meetings and activities. Generally speaking, data scientists ought to be concentrating their efforts on the problems deemed most important by business leaders. But there's a caveat. Sometimes data science produces unexpected insights that should be brought to the attention of senior leaders regardless of whether they align with current priorities. Point six so, there is a line to be walked here. If an insight arises that does not fit current priorities and systems but nonetheless could deliver significant value to the company, it is incumbent upon data scientists to communicate this to management. We found that to facilitate exploratory work, bank executives sometimes assigned additional data scientists to project teams. These data scientists did not co-locate and were instructed not to concern themselves with team priorities. On the contrary, they were tasked with building alternative solutions related to the project. If these solutions turned out to be viable, the head of the data science unit pitched them to senior management. This dual approach recognizes the epistemic interdependence between data science and business professionals, a scenario in which data science seeks to address today's business needs, as well as to detect opportunities to innovate and transform current business practices. Point seven, both roles are important if data science is to realize as much business value as possible. Mistake four, right tool, wrong user. Sophia, a business analyst, worked with her team to develop a recommendation engine capable of offering accurately targeted new products and services to the bank's customers. With assistance from the marketing team, the recommender was added to the bank's mobile wallet app, internet banking site, and emails. But the anticipated new business never materialised, customer uptake of the product suggestions was much lower than anticipated. To discover why the bank's telemarketers surveyed a sample of customers who did not purchase the new products. The mystery was quickly solved. Many customers doubted the credibility of recommendations delivered through apps, websites, and emails. Still looking for answers, Sophia visited several of the bank's branches, where she was surprised to discover the high degree of trust customers appeared to place in the advice of relationship managers A few informal experiments convinced her that customers would be much more likely to accept the Recommendation Engine's suggestions when presented in the branch by an RM. Realising that the problem wasn't the recommender's model, but the delivery mode of the recommendations, Sophia met with the senior leaders in branch banking and proposed relaunching the Recommendation Engine as a tool to support product sales through the IMS. The redesigned initiative was a huge success. The difficulties Sophia encountered highlight the need to pay attention to how the outputs of analytical tools are communicated and used. To generate full value for customers and the business, user experience analysis should be included in the data science design process. At the very least, user testing should be an explicit part of the data science project life cycle. Better yet, a data science practice could be positioned within a human-centred design frame. In addition to user testing, such a frame could mandate user research on the front end of the data science process. While we did not see instances of data science embedded within design thinking or other human-centred design practices in this study, we did find that the shadowing procedures described above sometimes operated as a kind of user experience analysis. As data scientists shadowed other employees to understand the sources of data, they also gained an understanding of users and channels through which solutions could be delivered. In short, the use of shadowing in data science projects contributes to a better understanding of the processes that generate data and of solution users and delivery channels. Mistake 5. The rocky last mile. The bank's win-back initiative, which was aimed at recovering lost customers, had made no progress for months. And that day's meeting between the data scientists and the product managers, which was supposed to get the initiative back on track, was not going well either. Data scientists thorough and viral were focused on how to identify which lost customers were most likely to return to the bank. But product managers Anish and Jalpa wanted to discuss the details of the campaign to come and were pushing the data scientists to take responsibility for its implementation immediately. After the meeting adjourned without a breakthrough, Viral vented his frustration to Thoreau, if data scientists and analysts do everything, why does the bank need product managers? Our job is to develop an analytical solution, it's their job to execute. By the next meeting, though, Viral seemed to have changed his mind. He made a determined effort to understand why the product managers kept insisting that the data scientists take responsibility for implementation. He discovered that on multiple occasions in the past, the Information Systems Department had given the bank's product managers lists of customers to target for win-back that had not resulted in a successful campaign. It turned out that using the lists had been extremely challenging, partly due to an inability to track customer contacts. So the product managers felt that being given another list of target customers was simply setting them up for another failure. With this newfound understanding of the problem from the point of view of the product managers, Viral and Thoreau added to their project plan the development of a front-end software application for the bank's telemarketers, email management teams, branch banking staff, and assets teams. This provided them with a tool where they could feed information from their interactions with customers and make better use of the lists provided by the data science team. Finally, the project moved ahead Viral and the ROS actions required an unusual degree of empathy and initiative. They stepped out of their roles as data scientists and acted more like project leaders. But companies probably should not depend on data scientists in this way, and they may not want to. After all, the technical expertise of data scientists is a scarce and expensive resource. Instead, companies can involve data scientists in the implementation of solutions. One bank in our study achieved this by adding estimates of the business value delivered by data scientists' solutions to their performance evaluations. This motivated data scientists to ensure the successful implementation of their solutions. The bank's executives acknowledged that this sometimes caused data scientists to operate too far outside their assigned responsibilities. However, They believed that ensuring value delivery justified the diversion of data science resources and that it could be corrected on a case-by-case basis if the negative impact on the core responsibilities of data scientists became excessive. The mistakes we identified invariably occurred at the interfaces between the data science function and the business at large. This suggests that leaders should be adopting and promoting a broader conception of the role of data science within their companies One that includes a higher degree of coordination between data scientists and employees responsible for problem diagnostics, process administration, and solution implementation. This tighter linkage can be achieved through a variety of means, including training, shadowing, co-locating, and offering formal incentives. Its payoff will be fewer solution failures, shorter project cycle times, and ultimately, the attainment of greater business value. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Please also support us by clicking the support button at our page anchor.fm forward slash maifers maifors. That's all for today. Hope you enjoy the podcast. We will see you again in the next episode. Have a great day. Take care and stay safe. I'm sorry, no matter, I'm sorry, no matter, i